This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Joshua Prager is an award-winning journalist, former senior writer for The Wall Street Journal. He served as a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University and a Fulbright Distinguished Chair at Hebrew University. He is the author of several books, including The Echoing Green, which won the Washington Post Best Book of the Year, His most recent work, The Family Row, tells the story behind the 1973 Supreme Court case, Roe v. Wade. And that is the topic of our conversation today. Joshua Prager, welcome to Thinking in Public. Uh, Thank you for having me, Dr. Moeller. You know, there are a few subjects about which more has been written in American life than abortion. And uh, yet you've taken on a uh, a more than 600-page work which I want to say is, I think, that from now on, indispensable about understanding Roe v. Thanks. Wade, uh, Norma McCarvey, and how the story came together. How did you uh, get onto this story? Why this book? Why you? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. Um, I, I was not a person who would have been pegged to write this book. What I mean by that is I knew little about Roe v. Wade. I hadn't given it much thought. But as a as a feature writer and an investigative reporter at the Wall Street Journal, I'd written several times about people whose lives were connected to history and people whose lives centered on secrets. To give just one example, there was only one anonymous winner in the history of the Pulitzer Prizes, a person who took a photograph of an execution um, and, and that picture was a indictment of the Islamic Revolution. I went to Iran and I found that man. So I was interested in secrets. And it suddenly occurred to me when I read an article that Norma McCorby, Jane Roe, though her case had brought about the legalization of abortion, it had been decided too late for her to get the abortion. And so somewhere there was a baby whose conception had led to Roe v. Wade. That baby was now a grown woman. I wanted to find that person. And I came to see that the pro-life referred to her or him, they didn't know who they were, as the Roe baby. And it was that um, realization that led me into the book. And it very quickly spread from finding that one person to writing about Norma and then Roe and the whole of abortion in America. I met Norma. Uh, I would not say that I knew her, but uh, I met her more than once. And uh, yet I knew very well many of the people who are actually uh, in your book. And so there's a sense in which I have a personal connection at many points. But uh, I also come to this book with, uh, with moral pre-commitments. I'm, a, I'm a, a, a very clear and uh, I hope consistent advocate uh, against abortion rights and for the sanctity of life of the unborn. Uh, but the story is of such importance, and your analysis of the story it is so comprehensive. It, it really adds to our knowledge of how not only abortion became legalized through the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, but how major currents in American life came together in a way that really can only be understood in retrospect. Absolutely. You know, I didn't know, as I said, much of this history. And I just sort of followed the story, as they say in the old journalism cliche. And it was fascinating to me that Roe was not what it is today. Now it is really the tip of this like large ideological iceberg that divides this country in two. If you know where someone stands on Roe, you're generally going to know where they stand on a lot of other issues. Um, And 
I traced back, I came to understand through Roe and understanding Roe through Norma, how we got to this point. Um, you know, it is wrong to think that it was um, the political issue that it is today. In fact, pre-Roe in 1967, it was Ronald Reagan as governor of California who signed into law the most sort of liberal um, abortion uh, law at the time. There were many women and girls who flew to California um, from 1967 on to get abortions. I mentioned that because at the time it had broad bipartisan support. But over years, and I go into the story how that happened, over years, things changed. Politicians flipped. Reagan, of course, Bush on the other side, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Dick Gephardt, Al Gore, and on and on and on. And so just following this issue, I came to see really how America in many ways um, came to be the polarized country that it is today. This story just corresponds in so many ways with my own life, with the lifespan uh, that I have known. I, I had nothing to do with Roe v. Wade uh, or the immediate response to it. And, uh, and that immediate response, by the way, on the part of any Southern Baptist is fascinating in and of itself. Uh, I was 13 years old when the decision was handed down. But in so many ways, my life has tracked with this. I know so many of the people in, in the story that you tell so comprehensively, uh, not only in Baptist life, but in political life. I worked for Ronald Reagan as a 16-year-old volunteer in 1976. And by that time, uh, the abortion issue had caught fire. My, my own mother was a, a, a pro-life activist. I came home from school in the you know, eighth grade and found uh, pictures uh, of uh, 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 evidence of abortion you know, on the dining room table. So I understand how this story unfolded, but the backstory is as interesting as the front story. Yeah, the backstory is fascinating. I mean, just to say, you know, my approach here as someone who is not a legal scholar, is not a lawyer, yeah. um, was to humanize the issue, yeah. to look at abortion in America, not through politics, but people. And I started with Norma, of course, Jane Roe, but then I surrounded her as well with with people. I surrounded her and her three children with three other people through whom I could look at abortion and how it had gone into every corner of American life. Um, a doctor named Mildred Jefferson, who was the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School, became one of the architects of the pro-life community. Um, a man named Curtis Boyd, who was a doctor um, and started in Texas, started providing abortions pre-row in Texas and really came, not only is he today the largest provider of third trimester abortion in America, but the reason I focused on him is because he prefigured the attitudinal shift in the pro-choice camp from being, they famously looked at it as President Clinton said, as something that ought to be safe, legal, and rare, to something that is, as he said, a social and moral good. Why should it be rare? You're only empowering women. I wanted to look at that, how we got to this. And then lastly, Linda Coffey, one of the two lawyers who represented Norma and really was totally overshadowed by her co-counsel, Sarah Weddington, because it was Weddington who argued the case in the court. But Coffey, I argue, who was a Baptist, a religious Baptist in Texas, um, and, and saw in the beginning when she brought this case in 1970, no issue there. Um, um, I look at her as well as really the matriarch of, of this from a legal point of view. And again, as a person who was not a lawyer, to examine the issue through, through these human beings, I was able to tell a story that I think is new and valuable. 
Well, it is. Uh, it's a story that is certainly newly told and and uh, and newly plowed. I mean, you, you've done an incredible job of investigative research here. But I, I just want to telescope back for a moment. Uh, Roe v. Wade was hardly inevitable in 1973. That's and right. so a lot of pieces had to come together. One of them was a plaintiff. And uh, you humanize Norman McCorvey. And frankly, you, you, you reveal a very great deal about which uh, I, I think almost no one uh, uh, knew. But, uh, you know, how, how did this happen? How do you get the intersection of uh, Coffee, Weddington, uh, Norma McCorvey? How does that happen? So it's really fascinating. Norma was a woman who grew up in a religious home. Her grandparents were Catholics turned Pentecostals. Her parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. She renounces religion when she's a teenager. Um, she, at around that same time, she tells her mother that she's gay. Um, <clears throat> her mother beats her for that. Um, she's sent off, Norma is sent off to a school for delinquent children because she's often in trouble. Um, and by the time she gets married, when she's 16 years old to a man, and by the time she's pregnant for the third time, in 1969, she has already relinquished her first two children to adoption, and she is unfit to be a mother and does not want to be a mother. At that point, she does not want to go through the ordeal again of giving birth to a child. She simply wants to abort it, and she tries desperately to have an abortion. Now, one of the things that was complicated writing about Norma was she lied endlessly, and I go into that. But so one of the lies she told, for example, was that she had gone to a um, clinic um, that had just been shuttered, an illegal clinic, and there was blood on the floor. She said it reeked of death and on and on. Everything was this great hyperbole. The truth was something much more um, commonplace. She simply could not afford the $500 it cost to go to an illegal abortion provider in Texas, and she could not afford to fly to California. She asks the man who had brokered her previous adoptions, a lawyer named Henry McCluskey, if he knew of any way she could have an abortion. And McCluskey happened to have gone to college, to law school, excuse me, with Linda Coffey. And he says, hey, Linda Coffey is looking for a plaintiff so that she can challenge the, the um, abortion statutes here in Texas. I'll mention as an aside, what's so interesting is I didn't know till I started this book about the overlap between the fight for gay rights and the fight for women's rights. So McCluskey was gay. Um, Coffee was gay and Norma was gay. And that isn't a coincidence as I explore in the book. Anyway, Linda Coffee then takes over the case of, uh, of uh, Norma's case and introduces her to her co-counsel, Sarah Weddington, and they then file the case on Norma's behalf. One of the things that was really um, distressing to read, whether you are for or against Roe, it was remarkable how bald, how baldly the lawyers used her and had no intention really of helping her to have the abortion she sought, which was truly remarkable um, given that Norma was desperate for an abortion. And Sarah Weddington had actually not only had an abortion, but had worked for an abortion referral network. And so That's it could right. have helped her, but they of course wanted a plaintiff. Yeah, now uh, one sub story in all of this is the fact that that's not as rare an occurrence in public interest laws is described as we might like to think. Uh, plaintiffs are often useful to a case. And uh, very sadly, that turned out to be the, the, the case just in terms of the personal neglect uh, of Norman McCorvey. 
Yeah, I, I quote a someone from a, a liberal think tank, actually, in the book saying that, yes, the plaintiffs often end up sort of sacrificial lambs for these cases. Um, you know, again, where you no matter where you stand on the issue, it's it's depressing to read of this story because Norma was uneducated. She wasn't duped. She later lied and said that her lawyers got her drunk. No, there was none of that. Um, she knew what she was getting into, but they didn't. They could have at least tried to help her have the abortion if she wanted it, and they didn't. Um, and then and then the moment they filed the case, they let her go. Um, and in fact, it was anger at Weddington above all that led to Norma becoming then a born again Christian and becoming pro life. It is true that religion was something that she that she that was a genuine comfort to her. But it is also true. She said it over and over and over again that she was furious at Sarah Weddington. She felt marginalized and exploited. And that, I think, explains above all why she then left her. I want to get to the uh, sub story here, which includes the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, prominent Baptists and uh, one of whom uh, I personally worked uh, as a staff member. And uh, I'll, I'll get to that, but uh, I'll just simply say your book was a, 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 an extremely shocking uh, revelation. And I can add actually some data points to your story that make sense only in retrospect. But uh, let me hold that for a moment. Um, the, the other thing is, is that uh, by the time you get to the, the mid-1970s, when I'm a teenager, you, you've got the pro-life and pro-abortion movement, and that's just the language I'm going to use here, that uh, for and against abortion rights, they had clearly begun to create a massive political uh, and moral cleavage in America because, uh, you know, go back to 1960, of course, it's not mentioned. And, and as a matter of fact, it's 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 not mentioned in a, um, a major party political platform uh, until the 1970s. Until oh, 1976. Yeah. And, and, and that's so it's after after Roe v. Wade that, that, that it's mentioned. But all this begins to explode, and names like Sarah Weddington uh, became very famous. Linda Coffey, not so much. She she was in the background. She actually sought, as you detail, uh, Sarah Weddington to take the case. I had no idea Sarah Weddington had had an abortion, nor did America. But uh, in terms of the morality of this tale, uh, it's really clear, and you document, that Sarah Weddington lied uh, about Norma McCorvey. Yeah, that was one of the most interesting things that I found. So- I mentioned how Coffey and Weddington exploited Norma. What was interesting was how obviously uncomfortable Weddington in particular was with that fact. Weddington, it was hard for women when they were graduating law school back in those days to get a job with a firm. And the first job that she took was actually helping a former professor of hers draft the ethical standards of the American Bar Association. So this is a woman who knew better. And what's very interesting is starting right around this time, 1976, I found three instances where she lied. She says that the reason Norma did not have the abortion, the reason she carried her pregnancy was because she wanted to ensure that she would have legal standing in the eyes of the court. Now, that is simply a lie. The reason Norman did not have an abortion is because although she was desperate to have one, they did not point her in the direction to do so. Um, and it, it is amazing that she lied and said this. But again, what I found also particularly interesting about it was that it clearly was a source of discomfort. She starts lying about it right after the road decision. And um that that was a that was a an appalling thing to find. Sarah Weddington had to make the uh, oral arguments uh, for Roe v. Wade before the Supreme Court twice. 
Yes, because uh, when when the case was initially argued, two of the justices had recently retired. They were both ill and they thought that for such an important case, they wanted to have a full complement of judges also to be justices, also to be perfectly honest. Part of the reason was that Blackman, Justice Blackman, Harry Blackman, who wrote the opinion, his fellow justices were not pleased, were not impressed with the initial papers with his initial reasoning, his initial memos that he circulated when the case first came before the court in 1971. And so they wanted to have more time. And so that also explains why it was then re-argued. Now, just looking at the at the, the case as it arrived at the Supreme Court, so we'll just fast forward to the Supreme Court in 1971, 72, 73. And uh, the, the case was handed down in January 1973. It had been re-argued the previous year initially argued in, in 71, uh, it was not inevitable that it would be a 7-2 decision in favor of uh, a newly constructed abortion right. It was not inevitable that Harry Blackman uh, would write uh, the majority opinion. So you tell the story. It's, a, it's one of the most important parts of your book. How exactly did that happen? Well, Justice Berger, uh, Berger and Blackman were called the Minnesota Twins. They were both from Minnesota. They knew each other when they were young. There was speculation that the reason Justice Berger actually gave the opinion to Justice Blackman, who was the um, the second most junior um, justice on the court for such an important case, was that he would be able to sort of influence his writing of it. Other people feel that, no, it was because Justice Blackman had had experience as the counsel for the Mayo Clinic, so he'd had dealings with the medical community. Um, and he actually felt strongly um, about um, a woman's right to choose. He felt that he, he talked about this to various people. And what was not known later on, one of the most important things I found that, um, or just discovered on my own was that in the, in the beginning of the Roe opinion, Justice Blackman writes a preamble where he says that if you want to know where a person stands on abortion, it is often their personal experience that informs that conviction. He, call, he says their exposure to the raw edges of human existence. He does not mention, however, that his own daughter had been unhappily pregnant a few years before in college. Similarly, one of his fellow justices, Justice Powell, also a Republican appointed justice, he had had an experience that had to do with abortion. He had been working at a law firm when one of the men who worked in the mailroom came to him for help. He said that his girlfriend had wanted to have an abortion, that he had brought her, he said, um, to um, an illegal abortion provider, and that she had then died, and he was now wanted on charges of manslaughter. This influenced Justice Powell as well. And one of the things that I focus on, of course, the pro-choice will, will point to those instances. They won't point to the people who are um, influenced on the other side. And I, and I look at both of those sides to give just examples. Many of the leaders on the pro-life side, including people I write about in my book, including Randall Terry, for example, who was the head of Operation Rescue, Flip Benham, who was the evangelical minister who, who brought Norma, Norma over to that side of the issue. They had had personal experiences with abortion. Um, um, Minister Benham had wanted, had pleaded with his wife to have an abortion when she was pregnant. He was not yet a religious man. She refused. She had then given birth to twin boys, and those boys were the lights of his life. And I think it's telling that when people have a personal connection to an issue, they then look at that issue, just as Justice Blackman had said they would, through the prism of their own experience. 
So I grew up uh, with Harry Blackman, basically. Uh, uh, I, let's just say I understood him primarily before I understood anything else uh, as the architect of Roe v. Wade. And uh, intellectually, as I was coming of age, and uh, you know, ha having to deal with how to interpret a text and the meaning of the Constitution and what it meant for the United States to be uh, a constitutional republic, uh, I I'll admit I've, I've had this fascination with Harry Blackman trying to figure out how in the world he could rationalize uh, a decision like Roe v. Wade. Uh, you point out a part of the backstory, and I have I've looked deeply into this over the years. Uh, his role at Mayo uh, made him feel that. I mean, you can see this. It, 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 I don't think I'm just reading this on. Made him feel like he had a certain expertise in writing about medical issues. But he also turned to Mayo and asked for basically advice, and and they knew what they were working on. Absolutely. He writes a letter. He says, I'm going to come to your library. You can imagine why I asked. Absolutely. He asked for information to help him um, basically write about abortion. One of the interesting things is if you read the ruling, again, I'm a guy who's not a lawyer. It's incredibly um, easy reading what I mean about that. It's not like a deep legal complicated right. thing. It has a, he writes about the history of abortion in different societies. Um, and, you know, it's very short on constitutional analysis. It has almost nothing. I think it's just a few sentences. Um, he does cite a few dozen cases where he sort of intuits, you know, the right to abortion from the constitution. But again, it has almost no constitutional justification for abortion. Um, and that, of course, is one of the reasons why even people on the left, like Justice Ginsburg, right. who famously, of course, supported abortion rights and argued on their behalf, she criticized it and said that the right to abortion ought to not have been couched in a right to privacy, but in a right to equality. Yeah, and that was basically the shift between the Roe v. Wade decision in 73 and the Casey decision in 1992. That's right. That's right. Uh, when David Souter, among others, basically helped to uh, redefine uh, Anthony Kennedy, very, very crucially, and uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, yeah. uh, you know, helped help, help to bring all that about. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'll just say one of the things that was fascinating for me, it had been rumored for many years that there was a memo that one of Justice Souter's clerks had yes. written that had swayed the justice and helped him to sort of orchestrate this sort of 11th hour, you know, um, change on the court, because previous to that change, people were sure that the court was going to overturn Roe, just as many are now. And I found that memo. And it's fascinating how exactly the law as we know it today in terms of abortion, the new undue burden standard yes. of regulating abortion, all of that came from this one clerk's memo. So let me make an admission. I've looked for that memo. <laughs> I have not been able to find it, but uh, my access to it is, is through your book. Uh, but it is interesting how that memo uh, basically worked its way into uh, the logic of, of the Casey decision. And, and at that point, uh, I, was, uh, I was very much involved in the issue. I was editor of the Christian Index in, in Atlanta, wow. the Southern Baptist Convention was uh, thoroughly uh, pro-life and, and consistently pro-life in terms of uh, its, uh, its public statements and its, its expectations. What year um, are you speaking about? I, I'm speaking oh. of uh, Casey. No, uh, so let's just say oh, 91, yes, 92. 92. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so I, I, I knew there was great hope. I, I think there's, you know, we're, we're speaking with the Dobbs decision from Mississippi, uh, not yet decided, but much speculation about it. And, uh, I, I I will simply say that I'm chastened by the the sad experience of '92 from uh, from anticipating exactly what the court might do. I'm very hopeful 
for a reversal of Roe v. Wade. But, uh, you know, in any event, I, the court, I think, would not have taken the case, even in granting a certiori, un, un, unless it was going to do something. We're about to find out, you know, what it's going to do. But then there will be another backstory. But I, I want to take us to what we just talked about. And, 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 and you cover it with an unusual uh, Elon, and, and, and that is the, uh, the, the, the dimension of, of, I'll just say, religion in this story. And uh, you, you basically point out Linda Coffey was, insofar as I know, is a member of Park City's Baptist Church in Dallas, um, uh, a, a church which uh, has been, you know, was for decades, one, perhaps the most establishment Baptist church in, in the metroplex of, of Dallas, uh, right there in Park Cities, which is perhaps uh, still synonymous with wealth and power. Uh, in, in in Dallas, uh, right there on uh, on Northwest, and uh, and the Southern Baptist Convention sent a very uncertain sound uh, in uh, anticipation of Roe. The Southern Baptist Convention adopted a resolution that was basically, certainly not consistently pro life, uh, and then after Roe, basically called for what can only be described as at least support for uh, abortion in need, if not abortion on demand. I think, you know, today Southern Baptists will be absolutely shocked by that. Yeah, you know, first in terms of that, before we get to coffee, it was fascinating to me. I did not know the history here. In 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, resolves very, it's not complicated language. Basically, it is a wholehearted support um, of a woman's right to have an abortion. It doesn't just say when her life or even her mental health is in danger. Um, And then in 1976, I apologize. What is the name of the Wayne Dehoney? Wayne Dehoney. Yes. Yes. He also, again, says that he feels that abortion poses no moral or ideological problem. I'm paraphrasing um, for the Southern Baptist Convention. 1980, there's a big about face. And of course, in the years just previous to that, there is sort of a um, in Exodus or, or, well, there's a lot of religious, there are a lot of evangelical Christians who are changing on this. And basically the Southern Baptist Convention has to get with the program. I did not know any of that. And, you know, it made sense to me because again, I, I started seeing, Hey, 67, I mentioned Ronald Reagan's, um, uh, law there. Um, what happens is, in California, Mildred Jefferson, who I mentioned earlier, who takes over the National Right to Life Committee, she is really more than anyone the first one. And she, by the way, is the one who brings over Ronald Reagan to the pro-life cause. She more than anyone um, recognizes what she sees as like great political promise in politicizing abortion. She feels that there are um, religious Catholics, primarily at that point, who um, are Democrats, but who oppose abortion. And she feels that this ought to be sort of paid attention to. And it is under her leadership that the National Right to Life Committee really politicizes abortion in 1976. The Republican National um, um, Committee, they then adopt a resolution saying that, you know, we oppose Roe, basically. Then the Democrats follow suit, saying that they're uneasy with any, and it heads off from there. Linda Coffey is no longer a member of that church. But what was very interesting, she personally felt that she said, and I found a wonderful interview with her that was conducted days after Roe by a newsletter put out by the Southern Baptist Convention, the Baptist Press. 
And she feels that while she feels that a woman ought to have the right to choose, she personally, she says, could not do that. And you can see that this is sort of how she's making peace with her work. And then as the years pass, not only does the Southern Baptist Convention, which, as you note, was a very important part of her life. Her grandfather was a deacon in that church. Um, she she was at she she her whole childhood was sort of spent at that church with with band practice and all these different things. Um, first, they repudiate um, abortion and then homosexuality and then also feminism in, in so many words. And she really feels that she no longer has a place at that church. And so she she is no longer um could be called a religious Baptist. She now lives in Mineola in East Texas with her partner. Just as an aside, it's fascinating. Here you have one of the, the heads, as I said, one of the mothers of Roe v. Wade, and yet she has been completely forgotten by the pro-choice movement. She lives in a house with no heat and lives on food stamps, which I find a remarkable thing. And you tell the story. It's very complex as to why that that, that is the case. And uh, it, it's just more of the human toll that uh, is reflected uh, in the story of Roe. I've, I've got to get back to uh, to connect some dots here with you. So uh, what you write, so far as I know, uh, you have really thoroughly covered uh, a lot of the issues related to the SBC and Ronald Reagan uh, in, in 1971, in 1967 with Reagan. Uh, it is really interesting that, that the, the pro-abortion side or pro-abortion right side tends to speak uh, of, of Reagan and, uh, and, and, and of Richard Nixon as if uh, they, they were merely politically expedient. I don't believe that's true at all. Um, so I agree with you. I'll just yeah. say I agree with you about President Reagan. The reason I agree with you is because uh, after you see in these private letters that were never publicized that I found, right. private letters where Reagan is writing to Jefferson saying, you have convinced me, you've changed my mind, and let me know how, not, how I can help you. Um, let me know what I can do. Now, I don't think it's inaccurate to say that he knew that there might be votes to one, as, for example, a few years sure. before, um, Patrick Buchanan is telling Richard Nixon and telling Nixon to about face on the issue. But I do believe that his rebirth was completely um, genuine. Yeah. And, and look, I'm not about to argue for the truthfulness of Richard Nixon under almost any circumstance. But uh, but I will say that it is interesting when you, when you go back, as you do, uh, I mean, with 600 pages of doc, including documentation, if you go back to something like Richard Nixon's uh, policy statement, the executive order related to uh, the uh, w whether people on military bases could get uh, abortions at local hospitals. I mean, uh, Nixon basically claims federalism as the cause and uh, and and very clearly makes a pro-life convictional statement that that was very unusual for a republican uh, at that time absolutely but it also follows it does not seem to come from some genuine you know something suddenly occurred to him it is laid out in bullet points by one of his yeah. advisors buchanan saying yeah. hey mr president this will help your cause well, again, I am I am not about to take up the cause of Richard Nixon's integrity. That is not that is not my purpose. Uh, more so for Ronald Reagan, because uh, you know, even in the political context, uh, yes, Reagan had uh, votes to gain uh, among Republicans, but at the same time, the conventional wisdom was those were votes to lose at a greater magnitude in the general election. And uh, when he wrote "Abortion in the Conscience of a Nation," again, I was a very young man uh, in in my twenties. But it, uh, to those of us in the pro-life movement, it was an amazing statement of conviction by someone who had, at that point, politically more to lose than to gain by it. Well, I mean, just 
a few things to say about that. He didn't write it. It was written by his advisor. I, I understand that. But he put his name on it. Yes. He absolutely attached his name to it. And, you know, he actually disappointed a lot of people in the pro-life movement at that time because there was still, and this was led by Mildred Jefferson, right. there was still a great hope on their part that there would be that there would be passed a human life amendment um, to the Constitution, which would basically say that abortion is illegal from the point of conception. And that that was soundly sort of defeated politically. And, and President Reagan then did not support that anymore. And so even Mildred Jefferson, who had brought him into the fold, was very upset by that. I do think I mentioned that because I do think even if his conviction was genuine, he nonetheless held his finger to the winds of politics. He knew which way those winds blow. What he then did was he, more than anyone at that point, decided the way to overturn Roe v. Wade is through the judiciary. And that was his foresight. And a lot of people believe that he, to this day, was correct which is sort of a good way to bring up Dobbs. I'm just curious if I'm allowed to ask you a question. Absolutely. Do you believe, what do you believe will be the outcome of Dobbs? Well, given the question the court has taken, uh, I I believe there's no reason to believe that the court, uh, just having granted, sir, takes four justices, you know, to to, to take the case. Uh, And then you look at the composition of the court. I believe that the, the Mississippi law will be upheld. And, and in one sense, the logic of, of Roe will, will be reversed. Whether there is a frontal declaration that Roe is, is reversed, that, that, that's a very different thing. And I think probably has more to do with the chief justice and how he lands on the issue and how, how he assigns it. Um, so yeah. that, that, that's the way it looks to me at the moment. I, I, I don't believe they're gonna, there's much possibility at all they will strike down the Mississippi law because otherwise I, I don't think they would have even granted the uh, I, I agree with you. And I think I think we could tell from the arguments in Dobbs that the chief justice actually does not want that banner headline row overturned. Um, he sort of was intimating that, but I think he's going to lose. I think that they are going to actually overturn row itself because the two justices who I was paying most yes. close attention to um, justice Barrett and justice Kavanaugh, justice Kavanaugh kept pointing to other instances when the court literally um, had overturned right. precedent and justice Barrett kept pointing to, adoption as a viable option for a woman who does not wish to, you know, become a mother. Well, I can simply say I'm, I'm with many others hoping and praying that is the case. Uh, just speaking from a, from a pro-life perspective, I have to go back to the Baptist story here. So if you'll allow me, let me connect some dots. Please. Texas is a big part of this. When the Southern Baptist Convention in 1971 adopts that resolution, it does so at the instigation largely of Texans. Uh, and and also, uh, critically, a Foy Valentine, who was head of the Christian Life Commission. Uh, the SBC was far more run from inside a very tight leadership circle, and Texas had an outsized influence uh, in that. Those people, uh, uh, those Texans knew each other very well. There, there are connecting points, whether it's Baylor or Southwestern Seminary at that time. or, or I mean, They were in a small world. And... Uh, and and they they were a part of a world in which uh, abortion rights, at least to some degree, according to their own understanding, was an extension of a kind of radical individualism by which they defined being Baptist. Now, the winning argument in the Southern Baptist Convention was contrary to that. Thus, I sit here today. And uh, but I was taught by many of those people, so I I I I know, and I also know that like Sarah Weddington was held up as a hero or or a heroine, I should say. Um, and uh, and and others uh, were were very tightly connected. 
Uh, I was very much a part of the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, and I will make the argument to my dying day that even though the inerrancy of Scripture was the, the, the front and most important theological issue, abortion was the, the moral issue that coalesced uh, an understanding in the SBC that there had to be a leadership change. Uh, so in other words, it wasn't the Southern Baptists changed their mind. It was a different Southern Baptists were in the room. And so I'm not, I'm not saying you were wrong. I'm just saying, you know, it, it, that, that Southern Baptists, by and large, did not change their mind. They changed who was in the room making the decisions. Well, you obviously know this far better than I. Um, what all I could do was I think what happens nowadays, we, we tend to sort of see things the way they are right. now and think they were always that way. And right. I wanted to sort of just at least track how the official statements of the convention changed. It's important. What's fascinating to me, I'll tell you, was I didn't know that. And I also didn't know the history of Catholicism on right. abortion. You know, we tend to think also there was sort of a blanket denunciation from day one. No, it was only in 1917 that that position was sort of codified for, for 700 years, for all but three of the previous 700 years. Basically, a woman would only be excommunicated if she'd had abortion post quickening. Um, and, and what was also interesting to me is looking where did that I, where did that idea come from? And part of that comes from a mistranslation of the single verse in the Old Testament that in any way addresses abortion, um, where it says that if there that if two men are sort of wrestling or fighting and they bang into a woman and cause her to miscarry, then if the fetus dies, they must pay a fine. But if the woman dies, they must pay with their lives. So clearly the Bible is differentiating between, you know, the loss of life of a fetus and of the mother. Um, but in the Septuagint, the original Greek translation of that verse, they don't say that the differentiation is between the mother and the fetus. They say rather it is between a fetus formed and unformed. Now, I happen to be a traditional Jew who speaks good Hebrew and knows the Bible well, and that translation is wrong. Um, so that was fascinating to me too. Looking back at the history, see how we get here. It doesn't all just come from on high. There are, there are human right. errors, human decisions that led us to where we are today. Well, and and even uh, just as you look at the history of Christianity, very early in the teaching of the uh, of, of the early church, you have a document known as the Didache in the very earliest period of the church, uh, in which it's very clear as a condemnation, a direct condemnation of abortion per se. But the question has been transformed by several things, and we take for granted modern medicine and our knowledge of gestation yeah. and 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 reproductive uh, uh, issues that frankly were not known uh, and were not even determinable throughout most of of human history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that was fascinating to just see like I think it was I don't want to get it wrong but Aristotle thought, you know, that a that a male um fetus doesn't achieve I don't remember what the word is, not sentience but like um personhood until right. like 40 days whereas the female it's 80 days, you know, just things that are completely off. Right. And, and certainly they knew the, the, the basics of human reproduction, and they understood that even without ever having, an, an, until the invention of the microscope, seen a sperm cell, uh, they right. knew that the male was contributing uh, seed. I mean, that, 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 that's a good word translated from the Hebrew. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yet, you know, the general assumption, to, uh, you know, the most educated was that it was a, a, a very small but fully formed human being included yeah, in that city. The, the um, homunculus, right? Right, was, right, yeah, right. That's right. 
I got to go back to something else. I served on Wayne Dahoney's staff. Oh, interesting. Okay, so uh, you blow a, 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 a hole in the, uh, the the hull of my vessel with uh, with that, just in terms of like a torpedo. Uh, but it, it also helps to, uh, to, to connect some dots. So let me just tell you, I came to Louisville in 1980 as a student. And, uh, and uh, because my uh, uh, boyhood pastor and Wayne Dahoney were good friends, Wayne Dahoney hired me on his staff as a seminary student. So I, I was at one point minister to college students at Walnut Street Baptist Church. And uh, so this would be 1980 and then minister to students at one point. And, uh, and, and it, 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 here, here's the amazing thing. There was a huge controversy over Wayne Dahoney. And, and Wayne and Leal Dahoney, uh, his name's on a, uh, a, a center for the research in the local church uh, here at the institution I lead. Uh, I knew Dr. Dahoney very well over a course of decades. Uh, there was a controversy when I arrived that had uh, come when the Walnut Street Baptist Church, and, and he's a former president of the SBC, very major SBC figure. Uh, the church. He led the church to buy a large and abandoned hospital, and uh, in the hospital was an abortion clinic, and it raised a massive controversy within Walnut Street Baptist Church. And when I was there, I, I was told just on the staff, "Oh, don't worry, the church is pro-life. It was by accident and without knowledge that the church basically became a landlord to an abortion uh, a clinic." Uh, it turned out later that was not true. <laughs> And, and and but I had no idea, frankly, of uh, of of some of what you record here in the book. I'm looking uh, at at uh, page 165 about Wayne Dahoney. Basically, I can only describe what he articulates here as a pro-choice position. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's interesting to hear your experience and your reaction to that. Look, I came from the again. I mentioned that when I started this book, I didn't know much about Roe v. Wade. But I have always felt that the way to examine an issue is through people. You know, the constitutional scholar, um, Lawrence Tribe, he was wrote a book called The Clash of Absolutes about abortion in this country. And he lamented the sort of sad state where we were. And he said that the only way that we might ever get to the other side of that is to humanize both issues to to he says the two sides of the versus Roe v. Wade as a, as a small aside I found it fascinating that it turned out that Wade himself was pro-choice no one knew that Wade's own son told me that but you know so I came from this saying hey I happen to believe that abortion is fraught for good reason I think it is a complicated issue and it was fascinating to see it isn't only the pro-life side that evolved. I mentioned, for example, on the pro-choice side, something that they would never want to sort of um, fess up to nowadays, which was that Dr. Tiller, who before his murder, was the largest provider of third trimester abortion in this country and became a hero to many on the pro-choice side for his sort of unbowed work, you know, even though the day after he was shot, the first time he returned to work the next day. Well, he was cast away. He, they, he was pushed aside by the National Abortion Federation. They wanted to have nothing to do with him. They thought he was too radical. Of course, a few years later, they then gave him their highest award. So there were very, you know, both sides, I think, changed. And the way for yeah. me to sort of, I'm sorry, the last sentence to say on that, the way for me yeah. to sort of track that was through the evolution of people like Dr. Boyd and Dr. Jefferson and see how we got to this point. 
I think we see this in argumentation and in the unfolding of time, right? So in the, uh, in the 16th century, Martin Luther begins the Reformation, at least in part by accident. He's calling for a reform of the church, not for a, a cleavage or a schism in the church. Uh, but he, uh, and he, he has to make public arguments defending his calls for reform, and eventually he works his way into uh, the solas of the Reformation. The same thing's true with the uh, the, the the colonists in the in uh, pre-revolutionary America. They don't start out, uh, you know, calling for revolution. They start out calling for the king to vindicate them with parliament. But they work themselves into the revolution because the the middle position disappears. In my view, that's what happened in abortion. The middle position has disappeared, and now, yeah, and now you're basically at a point where. Those of us on the pro-life side want to say that uh, that uh, 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 you know abortion is as the intentional termination of an unborn human life, which is a human person and is a violation of the law, should be of the of the law of man, but certainly the law of God. But then, as you point out in the book, the pro-abortion side is now pretty much in the position of saying that abortion ought to be justified under any claim or no public claim. Well, it was fascinating to watch how the language, for example, in the Southern Baptist um, uh, Convention resolutions changed every few years. So it was more and more and more sort of forceful in proclaiming the unborn a full, independent human life. That happened little by little. And the exact same thing happened on the other side. And it was fascinating for me to see. So Dr. Mildred Jefferson, again, I mentioned her before, head of the National Right to Life Committee. At the time when she is the head of the NRLC, she's one of, let's say there were 50 or so members on their on their board. Only three of them, she was one of three, she and Judy Brown, and I forget the third, believe that abortion ought to never be um, okay, not in instances of rape, incest. And no one then would have guessed that 40 years later, here we are, where all of these states are passing um, laws that, you know, basically trigger laws should Roe be overturned. Abortion will literally be illegal in all of those instances. Um, so I do feel, you know, Norma, again, Norma McCorby, Jane Roe was really the sort of latch key for me to open up and look at this entire issue. And here's what's really fascinating about her. She absolutely needed to wring a living out of her plaintiffship. She had very little. She was a disenfranchised woman. I show how her life was very sad. She tried to commit suicide. She was a prostitute for a time, all of this. And when she became so when she was speaking for the pro-choice, she just sort of parroted whatever they said about Roe. When she went over to the pro-life, she parroted whatever Father Frank Pavone told her to and flipped at him, et cetera. But she did actually have an opinion. She had a genuine opinion. And I know it was genuine because the very first time she was ever interviewed, days after Roe, by that same Baptist newsletter, first interview she ever gave in her life, She said that she felt that what she had initially done with Roe was wrong. She felt that Roe, excuse me, abortion ought to be legal just through the end of the first trimester. After that, she would feel uncomfortable with it. Fascinatingly, she then repeats those exact same words days after she becomes a born-again Christian and is interviewed by Ted Koppel on Nightline. Her friends in Operation Rescue are aghast because she's saying that she feels that abortion ought to be legal through the first trimester. And she then repeated those same words to me again at the end of her life, literally on her deathbed. I was with her when she died and, and in the days leading up to her. And so she did have an opinion. She represented what she called the mushy middle. And it's the majoritarian middle ground in America because you know, we all read the, the stats put out, but a majority of Americans, they their support for abortion dwindles by the trimester, but a majority of Americans feel that abortion ought to be legal through the first trimester. 
I don't contest the, the, the polls in that respect. Uh, I also think most Americans are heavily influenced by whatever reasoning they have just heard about abortion and how even those questions are posed. And I think you would agree at least with that. And uh, yeah, I think that's the, true. The reality is, is that the law is going to inevitably, uh, the law is going to say one thing or another. And, and that's where we are now down to not only the Dobbs case before the Supreme Court, but I mean, state by state uh, efforts. Uh, and and uh, I think in your book, by the time you end, you suggest that if Roe is struck down, something like uh, 26 states will uh, will, will have uh, abortion outlawed and uh, a, it's a smaller right area. down the middle. It's fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, on the left, you've got the Center for Reproductive Rights. On the right, you I was speaking to Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel on Americans United for Life. They disagree as to the exact number, but it's simply a matter of degree. But yes, it will pretty much go down the middle. And, you know, whether you think it's good or bad, those states, the division of those states correlate to often, well, the, the bottom line will be that often women of color and women who are poor are the ones who have to travel the most to, to obtain an abortion. It will be illegal in the states where they live. You know, just looking at, uh, at this whole equation, uh, there's just tragedy everywhere you look. And, and as a Christian theologian, I just have to say that that is exactly what we should expect to see when we're talking about life and death. And we're talking about uh, the human carnage of so many public events and, and public issues. Uh, and uh, But the closer you get to abortion, the more grotesque uh, the picture becomes. And I, I found your book very difficult to read, I have to say. And, and a part of it was because, um, you know, I was in meetings. For instance, at the March for Life on the 20th anniversary, so that would have been 1993, January of 1993. I was on, I was on the board at one point of, of two pro-life organizations. And you, you got there, and yet after the public events, there, was, uh, there were a series of meetings, but uh, one of them in particular that got to an absolutely gruesome state uh, because of disagreements over whether uh, the Human Rights Amendment should be, uh, you know, re resurrected as an effort, or, or whether this should be through the judiciary. Um, you, you, one of the things you point out well is that on both sides of this argument in public, there are many different positions contesting for uh, for influence. Yeah, absolutely. I can tell you that I came away a little cynical, um, or a way, maybe a better way to put it is this. You know, again, Norma was the perfect sort of prism. Um, through which to examine this issue in America. The reason that she was so conflicted about abortion was, as she saw it, there was an irreconcilability between things that had to do with sex and religion. She was the third generation in her family, third straight generation of women who had had an unwanted pregnancy. And that fact shoots them in very different directions. But what was so interesting to me was the leaders on both sides of the issue, unfortunately, did not by and large treat her well. But you know what? Conversely, the people in the grassroots did. There are genuine people, whether you disagree with them or agree with them, there are people who genuinely, um, well, they treated Norma well, and they and they arrived at their opinions um, in honest ways. Um, one of the fascinating women um, that I write about in the book is a woman named Judy Wiggins, a pro-life advocate, works at a um, um, at a crisis pregnancy center in Mississippi, where she got to know Norma. And she believes she there was a period in her life where she had four abortions in just a few years, a period of, of recklessness and, um, and 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 
a lot of drug use, etc. Anyway, but she said that, you know, she believes to this day, despite her work, that we need to understand that abortion is complicated and that her own experience opened her eyes to the fact that it is complicated. And there are sometimes incredibly compelling reasons, whether you disagree with them or not, that a woman will want to have an abortion. Similarly, there are incredibly compelling reasons that a person feels that abortion ought to never be allowed. And I didn't shy away from those facts in my book. So you mentioned that it was difficult to read. One of the things that I made sure to do is write about the procedure itself. You know, just as maybe this is a horrible analogy, but it's very easy to be to eat meat if you never have to be the one to slaughter the animal. If you're simply buying your, your chicken um, in a prepackaged thing in an aisle um, in, a, in a supermarket. And I think that if you, you know, you want to be, you want to believe that a right, that, that a woman should have a right to choose. Okay. I happen to believe that, but I wanted to confront the reality of abortion and understand that it isn't fair to say that there are never third trimester abortions that happen for any reasons other than that the woman's life is in danger, for example, or you know, just understand how we got here. It's complicated. And, and that's why I examined it through people to write about it in human terms. Well, you did write about it in human terms, but you also did so in a way that documents uh, incredibly thorough research. Uh, coming to this from a, uh, from a pro-life perspective uh, and, and commitment, I, uh, I understand that human lives are complicated, I don't believe that the theological and uh, ontological questions about the unborn child are all that complicated. And on that, we'll, we'll just have to disagree. But the story of how fallen human beings, sinful human beings, by my uh, understanding, uh, deal with these things in private and in public, uh, that always gets complicated. And uh, it, it's going to be complicated after the Supreme Court rules in the Dobbs case. And uh, once the situation, if, if, that, if that case goes, as I hope it will in its decision, uh, it will simply mean that uh, all this energy gets transferred into 50 states uh, where there will be battles untold. But Absolutely. Uh, if people think things are going to get simpler after Dobbs, they're nuts, no matter what the decision. It's no. going to get only more, much more complicated. Well, that might mean that your research needs to continue. And uh, I, I, again, just want to thank you for the work you put into this book. Uh, you know, your personal relationship with Norma McCorvey had to be an incredible journalistic stewardship. And I, I think you've written of her very honestly, but also uh, with respect. And, uh, and I respect that. I appreciate you saying that. You know, I will tell you that she was a complicated woman and complicated to write about. But at every turn, and I don't deserve the Nobel Prize for this, I was mindful that she was a woman who, you know, had had a difficult life. And I always was remembering and telling myself, look, you want to be a good journalist, but first and foremost, you want to be a good person. And this is a person who had been used and abused. And I tried at always at, at every point to be as empathetic as I could. And I would like to think, if I may say, that it is really empathy that above all informed the writing of this book. It's very easy for people to judge other people, but let us walk in their shoes and then judge them. And I spent a lot of time in Texas um, with them and her children, all of whom we didn't discuss those three children, Melissa, Jennifer, and Shelley, the youngest of whom was the Roe baby. These are very difficult things that they inherited. To be Norma's child was not an easy thing. 
um, even if you were given up for adoption and didn't know who she was because of your genetic inheritance. Um, Norma also used drugs during her pregnancies, which was a complicated thing for the the, the girls and then you know women she gave birth to. So um, I tried it oh at every step to be fair. And um, Norma felt in the end that I was an ally, and she was she had forgotten because she was so used to sort of telling lies, she had forgotten kind of what happened where. And when I found her private papers in the garage of her former partner's home, they were sort of a roadmap to help me write what actually happened. And she helped me do so. For example, she was incredibly happy when she remembered the name of the man who was the biological father of her youngest child so that I could tell his story. She really was my partner in this. Well, I have to say that uh, as one who's been involved in this issue for a very long time, and, and as a theologian trying to grapple with this issue, as a Christian, uh, I would simply have to say that given the gravity of this issue, it would be hard not to expect brokenness just about everywhere you look. I met Norma, to my knowledge, twice. It was, and in both cases, it, it certainly struck me that she had lived an incredibly hard life. I totally agree with you. And that goes for people on both sides of the issue. To have your life sort of defined above all or to be using your life above all in the service of one side or another in this to define your life by abortion is a very difficult thing. And people that's, you know, when I the name of the book is The Family Row and it refers to two families. There's Norma and her immediate children, but there's also the tens of millions of Americans whose lives are connected in one way and defined in one way or another by this issue. And that is a very difficult life. These are fractured families. And Norma is the sort of, she's the one connection there. Um, and so, um, as I say, writing about her was really a human way into writing about this much larger issue. Mr. Breger, you are obviously a very uh, gifted, talented, and uh, hardworking journalist. I appreciate all the work you have put into this book. And I especially appreciate the generosity of this conversation today uh, for thinking in public. Well, thank you for having me. I, I'm really um, delighted to speak to your audience and to you. Thank you again, sir. Thank you. Sincere thanks to my guest, Joshua Prager, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking.